Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. What was that? Was that a falling body? David Bowie was sure he'd seen a body fall from the sky, sailing downwards past the picture window of his Hollywood home. He went to look and it was gone vanished. But it seemed so real. So did the phantom voices that called to him from the intercom at the front gate. So too did the spirit that haunted his swimming pool, which manifested as a swirling vortex of bubbles. He was in touch with a practitioner of white magic, a so-called good witch, to exorcise the demons. This good witch could probably handle a pool, but she was going to need some serious backup if she was going to exorcise the demons that plagued David's soul. He pulled the blinds shut, desperate to block out the bright sun and the dark forces that lurked outside. Now his world was a dimly lit living room, made all the more tomb-like by the unsettling Egyptian decor. Often, the only light emanated from the film projector, running loops of Nazi newsreels with alarming frequency. For extra spiritual protection, David drew pentagrams on the wall and lit black candles, tricks he'd gleaned from his growing library on the occult. He'd collected volumes of religious and mystic texts, including works on tarot, Kabbalah, numerology, and Egyptology. His spirit was under assault, and this would help keep the enemies at bay. Another enemy was sleep, which he warded off with mounds of white powder. A few sniffs kept him awake, productive, vigilant, and safe. It was the spring of 1975, or maybe summer. Who's to tell, really? For David, time passed in a breakneck blur as he stayed up for three or four days at a stretch. He was in town to make his feature film debut, but production delays left him to his own devices. Often, these devices were snortable. The mix of sleep deprivation and drugs drove him to a state that bordered on psychosis. He would remember few specifics of this period in later years, just disturbing emotional impressions. Over the course of his days-long bouts of consciousness, his world would transform into, in his words, a bizarre nihilistic fantasy of oncoming doom, mythological characters, and imminent totalitarianism. The line between dream and reality was becoming impossible to define. Each hour he remained awake, 
a new enemy seemed to come for him. There were witches who were after his semen, intent on using it to create a baby to sacrifice to Satan. Bowie kept a close watch on his bodily fluids, even storing bottles of his urine in the fridge. The CIA was interfering with his writings. The Manson family had prowled these hills just a few years earlier, and their energy was still palpable. The perceived threats came even from his fellow musicians. Ever since a nasty altercation with Jimmy Page, David was sure that the Led Zeppelin guitarist was conspiring with his coterie of black magic women to wish him ill. The Rolling Stones, meanwhile, were taunting him with messages hidden in their albums. Nazis, Manson, Satan. David felt surrounded by forces of evil. But to his friends, the real enemy was cocaine. Sigmund Freud had called it his magical substance. It pushed David further into the realms of magical thinking, which looked an awful lot like madness, and his reputation was taking a hit. One music magazine described him in print as old vacuum cleaner nose, but it wasn't a laughing matter. Cocaine had overtaken food as his most crucial sustenance. Blow, milk, and red peppers kept him alive, though just barely. His skeletal frame now weighed around 90 pounds. He'd overdosed on several occasions, and by his own admission, he could have easily died. Partiers like Keith Richards and Elton John seemed to think so. It was the most destructive period of David Bowie's life as he pushed himself far past the point of no return. Secluded in his mansion, populated by a parade of dealers and parasites, he was beyond help, estranged from his family and old friends, and completely unmoored from everything that had kept him grounded. After years on the brink, he'd finally split, snapped. He was a cracked actor, lost in the long L.A. night. Hello and welcome to Off the Record, the show that goes beyond the songs and into the hearts and minds of rock's greatest legends. I'm your host, Jordan Runtog. This season explores the life, or rather lives, of David Bowie. Today's episode looks at Bowie's L.A. years, a time when he battled his deepest demons in the City of Angels. It was the high point of his career to date, but it was the low point of his life, and nearly the end of it. Somehow, in the midst of this personal nadir, he pulled himself back from the edge and made an album that many consider a masterpiece. In January 1975, David Bowie completed his very first number one single, and he had a Beatle for backup. It was a twist of fate that even he couldn't have predicted. A decade earlier, David had attempted a feeble John Lennon impression on his first ever release, Liza Jane. Now he was in the studio with the man himself, hanging out, playing together, and even writing together. The resulting track was called, appropriately enough, Fame. Their burgeoning friendship had allowed the two to compare notes about their extraordinary lives. David was beginning to learn the hard truth that Lennon had arrived at years earlier. Being a rock star ain't all it cracked up to be. It's fitting that this meditation on the shallowness of show business notoriety would ultimately take David to the top of the American charts. But the achievement only underscored his growing dissatisfaction outlined in the song. Carlos Alomar's relentless guitar riff, endlessly swirling around a single chord, evoked the monotony and claustrophobia of celebrity. The lyrics, which David wrote on the spot in just 20 minutes, were a snapshot of his life at his supposed peak of success a litany of money worries and insecurities. Fame takes you there where things are hollow, he sang. What you need, you have to borrow. 
This all led to one big question. Why didn't David ever seem to have any money? Through his friendships with Mick Jagger, Elizabeth Taylor, and John Lennon, he'd witnessed the lifestyles of the obscenely wealthy. These people had estates, tax shelters, fleets of cars, jewelry collections. David had none of that. He'd just sold out a residency at Radio City Music Hall and debuted his new single on national television. Yet he had to borrow petty cash from his management offices just to buy a few records. Something didn't add up. He began to grow suspicious of his manager, Tony DeFries. The partnership had launched his career, but he became increasingly fearful that he had nothing monetary to show for it. He confided in John Lennon, who was still dealing with the legal quagmire of the Beatles split more than four years before. Managerial mishaps had played a pivotal role in driving the Fab Four apart, and it made John wise to the world of contracts. John advised his younger friend to take a closer look at what he'd gotten himself into. At the dawn of the decade, David and DeFries were united by the shared goal of making David the biggest rock star on the planet. And they'd more or less succeeded, together. From the start, DeFries offered him a creative cocoon, taking care of all business and finance concerns through his management company, Main Man. When David was effectively penniless, it was a pretty good deal. He didn't have to worry about rent or food. DeFries made sure everything was covered, leaving him free to focus on his music. In a way, it was every artist's dream. But the campaign to launch David had come at a high cost, and DeFries intended to recoup his investment. He'd operated under the theory that to be a star, one had to look like a star, act like a star, and generally live like a star. A classic case of fake it till you make it. David was fine with this. He knew you had to spend money to make money. He just didn't realize that the money being spent was his own. The lavish expense accounts, the on-call limos, the phalanx of bodyguards, the elegant offices, the hotel suites and room service, the whole big-budget Diamond Dogs tour debacle, every gleeful, shameless excess of the whole man-man managerial stable, David foot the bill for all of it. What he didn't have on hand was taken as an advance against future earnings. At the present rate, he'd have to work the rest of his life just to break even. David had no idea or so he'd claim. Like most artists, he had little interest in the fine print. Early in his career, he'd let his father manage every aspect of his finances, from bills to taxes and insurance. DeFries was just another father figure, and he trusted him blindly. For years, David just left him to it. DeFries once handed a stack of contracts to his secretary, saying, take these to David. Don't worry, it won't take long. He'll sign anything. And it was true. I had my eyes on the star prize, David would later admit. Nothing else mattered. As a result, he was blissfully ignorant of his precarious financial situation. But by 1974, he began to wonder aloud where his money was going. Why did DeFries own multiple properties in Manhattan and a country estate in Connecticut, while he, the alleged star, made do with a single crummy townhouse? It was rented, just like everything else in his life. He didn't own anything. Yes, his reliance on cocaine had made him a little edgy, but surely something was badly wrong. DeFries, for his part, didn't appreciate the torrent of questions from his mercurial client. Besides, he had his own gripes with Bowie. Some of it could be chalked up to creative differences. David's foray into R&B on his new, yet-to-be-released album, Young Americans, had left DeFries cold. 
Plus, the abrupt abandonment of a quarter-million-dollar Diamond Dog stage set got under his skin. Even a big spender like DeFries had to shudder at the waste of it all. But the artistic disagreements were just the beginning. More than anything else, he disapproved of David's drug use. DeFries barely even drank. By now, Bowie was snorting lines in the middle of mainman meetings, making communication all but impossible. DeFries knew better than to talk to David when his eyes had that peculiar glimmer. To him, David was becoming increasingly unmanageable. To David, DeFries was becoming increasingly useless. A collision seemed imminent. It occurred in July of 1974, as David was set to play a doubleheader at Madison Square Garden. DeFries had taken David's wife Angie to task for spending too much on airfare in recent months. David had his own problems with Angie these days, but he didn't react well to this criticism of his spouse, even if their open relationship was on the rocks. Moreover, he was confused why they had to penny pinch. Surely they were doing well enough to cover airline fees. Annoyed and more than a little baffled, David called main man president Tony Zanetta to his hotel suite for an uncharacteristically blunt discussion of company finances. It was the first time he'd ever really asked what was being done in his name. Zanetta's explanation left him shocked. From the start, David thought he and DeFries had split everything down the middle, 50-50, as equal partners. He believed that he was a co-owner of Main Man, the company that controlled his music, his management, his life. The reality mapped out in his contracts was heartbreakingly different. He owned no part of Main Man. He was an employee of DeFries, entitled to 50% of the profits after expenses. Expenses like tours, offices, hotel suites, everything. In an instant, David realized that the business empire he strove to build didn't belong to him. It was a mirage. After a few moments of denial, he gasped, Did I work this hard to have nothing? From then on, it was over between him and DeFries. David had no interest in changing the terms of his deal. He simply wanted out. David's assistant and right-hand woman, Coco Schwab, found him a lawyer named Michael Littman, and in January of 1975, he began proceedings to sever all ties with Main Man and DeFreeze. Lawyers shuttled between rooms in an L.A. hotel for 48 continuous hours before a settlement was reached. DeFreeze emerged the clear victor. Main Man would receive half of all profits on all albums David had made under their management. Forever. This included classics like Hunky Dory, Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane, and Diamond Dogs. DeFreeze would also receive a sizable percentage of David's income through 1982. Throughout the long, shadowy history of music management deals, these terms were unusually favorable for an ex-manager. Their partnership had begun with Bowie in tears, desperate to leave his former manager, Ken Pitt. Now that was how their union ended. David broke down at the meeting as millions of his future earnings were surrendered. He was escorted from the room in what some believed was a state of clinical shock. For days after, anguished cries could be heard coming from the direction of his bedroom. He tried to take a zen approach to the whole madman affair, later saying, I certainly wouldn't have achieved that degree of notoriety without all that nonsense going on. I guess I'm thankful for that period in a way. He was free but he was alone. Some changes were made to preserve the trickle of money he had coming through. 
He moved out of the two-bedroom suite at the Pierre Hotel, where he'd run up $20,000 worth of room service in a single month, and into a rented brownstone in New York's Chelsea neighborhood. David barely bothered to furnish the place, and the Spartan accommodations left visitors feeling claustrophobic and depressed. David's difficult financial position forced him to cancel the small allowance that he'd been paying to his mother, Peggy, back home in England. Their relationship wasn't exactly warm at the best of times, and now Peggy was furious that her boy had cut her off. She took her complaints to the press, calling David a terrible hypocrite. David coolly informed her that if she ever repeated the stunt, she would never see him or his money ever again. He reinstated her allowance and even sent her his gold records and awards. She set up a virtual shrine to David in her apartment, but she seldom saw her son in the flesh. For much of the decade, he'd maintain his distance. After touring nonstop for almost three years, David was rarely seen for most of 1975. That March, he made one of his only major appearances, presenting the Best Female R&B Award at the Grammys in New York. Clad in an elegant white tie tux, he looked amazing, every bit the classy show business idol. Yet he was gripped by nerves beforehand. He confided in John Lennon, a fellow presenter and a fellow Englishman abroad, that he felt misunderstood in America. Yanks, David believed, just didn't get him creatively. After addressing the Grammys crowd with a very Bowie-like, ladies, gentlemen, and others, he handed the trophy to winner Aretha Franklin, who blurted out, Wow, this is so good, I could kiss David Bowie! She didn't mean it as a compliment, and David was deeply mortified by the line. He slunk off stage and into the arms of Lennon, who tried to cheer him up by planting a theatrical kiss on his cheek. See, Dave? Lennon teased. America loves you. The incident was indicative of a minor backlash that had set in, at least among his musical peers. He'd learned that fame meant not only rubbing shoulders with fellow superstars, but ruffling the feathers of a few. And it hurt. At one party, David met Bob Dylan, who sniped, Glam rock isn't music, before turning his back on him. The rejection stung. David responded by disappearing into the private quarters of his downtown brownstone and indulging in an increasingly vampiric existence. For most of the year, he'd retreat from the public eye and into himself. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick 
and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. By the spring of 1975, David Bowie was ingesting what a friend would refer to as enough cocaine to kill a horse. It had long since gone from being a tool to being a necessity, required to maintain his energy on the Diamond Dogs tour the prior year. He refused to go on stage without it, and there was always a roadie, groupier fan willing to keep him supplied. The gold-topped cane he twirled during the show wasn't merely a prop, but sometimes necessary to hold up his frail frame. One night in Detroit, he accidentally spilled a baggie of white powder on his hotel room floor. Saying nothing, he dropped to the ground and began huffing the rug. Cocaine was simply a part of his life. He thought nothing of openly snorting lines during dinner in front of girlfriend Ava Cherry's parents. At least on the road, he had performances to burn off his chemically enhanced energy. But when the tour wrapped, he simply stewed in his house foregoing sleep with the aid of medical-grade Merrick cocaine, stronger than anything he'd encountered in England. It was easily obtainable, and it kept me working, he would recall. I wasn't really an out-on-the-town guy. I was much more, okay, let's write ten different projects this week and make four or five sculptures. After several days awake, he started to hallucinate, spotting angels floating outside his window. The delusions came hard and fast, Even Mick Jagger, no stranger to illicit substances, grew worried as David started rambling about enemies bugging his phone or tailing his car. He spouted fears that the freeze was Hitler incarnate, and on-again, off-again friend Lou Reed was inhabited by the spirit of the devil, and together they were out to destroy him. He became convinced that Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page, an enthusiastic student of legendary Satanist Aleister Crowley, also intended to do him harm. To ward them off, David embarked on what he would later refer to as his wayward spiritual search. He developed an all-consuming interest in tarot, astrology, numerology, and the Kabbalah, not to mention more fringe theories like black magic, prehistoric spacemen, and the Third Reich's alleged search for the Holy Grail in pre-war Britain. All manner of psychic phenomena was explored, and even the mundane took on supernatural significance. He insisted he possessed the power of telepathy, once urging a friend to concentrate on a five-figure number. Amazingly, after a few minutes of focus, David guessed four of the five numbers in the sequence. Maybe he was on to something after all. David was fairly open about his idiosyncratic interests. During an interview with American chat show host Dick Cavett the prior December, he confused television viewers and Cavett himself, by discussing not his new single, but something called Black Noise, a sound powerful enough to level buildings or even destroy an entire city. 
After several minutes of painfully stilted, semi-comprehensible rambling, Cavett finally asked his guest, Do you want to be understood? David replied, There's absolutely nothing to understand. A more worrisome profile appeared a month later in the form of a BBC television documentary. Young producer Alan Yentob initially planned to call his film The Collector, based on Bowie's description of himself as a collector of faces, gestures, and presences. But when they first met up to begin filming during the Diamond Dogs tour the prior September, Yentub saw the troubling effects of the endlessly shifting personalities, not to mention the copious cocaine use. He ultimately called the documentary Cracked Actor, after the Aladdin Sane song about the perils of fame. It was an appropriate title. The film presents Bowie as a man perpetually in motion, driven by a potent, toxic blend of ambition and fear, crisscrossing America in search of an identity, having jettisoned Ziggy for Diamond Dogs, and now this new guise as the soul singer of young Americans. Bowie seemed haunted and lost throughout the shoot. He was barely sleeping or eating, and looked fragile, achingly sad, and at times scarcely human. Their late-night interviews were obtuse and difficult to follow, with Bowie often speaking in riddles and referring to himself in the third person. He made repeated references to schizophrenia and claimed not to know, quote, whether I was writing the characters or the characters were writing me. The most memorable scenes in Cracked Actor take place in the back of Bowie's limousine. There's a nocturnal cruise through L.A., the sound of a police siren in the distance sends Bowie into a paranoid panic. Is there anything behind us? He asks anxiously. Then he sniffs, a sniff all too familiar to anyone in the entertainment scene of the 70s. There's an underlying unease here, he tells Yentrub's camera. You can feel it in every avenue. It's very calm, and it's a kind of superficial calmness that they've developed to underplay the fact that there's a lot of high pressure here. Later, while driving through the desert, Yentub asks David how he's absorbed the American culture that surrounds him. David responds by pointing to a fly who'd come to rest in his ever-present bottle of milk. He's a foreign body, and he's getting a lot of milk, David says of the insect. That's how I feel, a foreign body. For all of David's success, he still felt like the perpetual outsider. Cracked actor was the most thorough portrait of David to date. It also offered David the unique experience of viewing himself from the outside, just like his audience. Bowie later told Yentub that he watched the film again and again because, in his words, it told the truth. What he saw captivated him and horrified him. His debilitating cocaine addiction is on full display, edging him towards a precipitous mental decline. He looked awful, waxy and emaciated. Cracked Actor is the defining document of his most difficult period, and he would find it painful to watch. But for a group of Hollywood film executives, it was exactly what they were looking for. They were casting for English director Nicholas Rogue's latest film, a sci-fi parable called The Man Who Fell to Earth. It's an allegorical tale of an extraterrestrial soul destroyed by all too human vices and frailties. Power, greed, corruption alcohol, and media. It's centered around an alien visitor who'd come to Earth to save his planet and his family. Shielding his true identity with a human alter-ego known as Thomas Jerome Newton, the endeavor initially made him rich and influential. Then it left him spiritually depleted and addicted as he fell in with those who sought to cash in and take advantage. 
Any of this sounding familiar? The producers' search for their leading man had so far been fruitless. They'd kicked around established names like Peter O'Toole, but it didn't quite feel right. No, said Nick Rogue. I want someone weak, slender, and pale. I want them to look as if they have no bones. By chance, a casting agent caught a screening of Cracked Actor. The shots of Bowie in the back of the limo clinched it, gazing out the window, totally disconnected from the world outside, alone, isolated, and alien. Bowie was initially wary when he was first approached for the man who fell to Earth. He'd been pitched piles of alien films, gimmicky, Ziggy Stardust-the-movie-type vehicles, but this one had a little more substance. He invited Rogue over to his apartment to discuss it further. The director arrived at 9.30 that night. David arrived at 5.30 the next morning. After some brief apologies, David said he'd do the film, then headed directly for his bed. He admired Rogue's persistence. Moreover, he liked that Rogue had directed his friendly rival, Mick Jagger, in the 1970 film Performance. Bowie's sense of competition kicked in, and he dove headlong into the role. And what a perfect role it was. Estranged from reality on a daily basis, he could more or less just be himself. I was definitely living in two separate worlds at that time, he later admitted. My state of mind was quite fractured and fragmented. It was quite easy for me not to relate too well with those around me. The production brought him to L.A., which would remain his home base for the next year. He initially crashed at the home of his friend, Deep Purple bassist Glenn Hughes. It wasn't long until the pain and paranoia that gripped him on the East returned. Part of it was environmental. Then, as now, the city bore the psychic weight of incalculable crushed dreams. The hard-working heartbroken were taunted by the shameful excesses of the high-flying few who partied like the last days of Rome. Too much money, too much power, too many drugs, and they'd stab you in the back to keep it. One wannabe singer turned the tables in the most terrifying way imaginable. His name was Charles Manson. In the summer of 69, he sent his band of young followers into the Hollywood Hills to slaughter innocents, a vengeful act of rage against the community who had shunned him. Pregnant actress Sharon Tate was murdered along with her friends inside her exclusive Benedict Canyon home. The following day, they struck again, carving supermarket executive Lino LaBianca and his wife Rosemary with their own kitchen forks and knives. From then on, Los Angelinos could never shake the sense that some vague, unnamed evil lurked in the bucolic hills, and every beautiful flower child was actually a brainwashed murderer. L.A. had always been a two-faced town, but never before had the duplicity been so deadly or demonic. For David, the nightmare of six years earlier struck even closer to home. The LaBiancas had been killed just a few doors down from the house where he stayed. For protection, he kept a stash of knives under his bed. All this to say, the vibes were bad. Making matters worse, the production of The Man Who Fell to Earth was delayed, leaving Bowie with little to do for several months. So began what David would later describe as, quote, one of the worst periods of my life. At loose ends, he carried on much as he had in New York, holing up in Glenn Hughes' house and disappearing into a blizzard of cocaine. As one friend would note, a common form of greeting around L.A. in this period was for someone to simply say hi and stick a silver spoon under your nose. Dealers, hustlers, and other hangers-on quickly sussed out Bowie's address, and they arrived with whole platefuls of the stuff. 
Despite its reputation as a party favor, cocaine is fundamentally an antisocial drug, and a cruel one at that. It provides energy and confidence, but it also eliminates the innate need to be liked. After a few toots, you don't care if you upset people. Cocaine severs any link you have to another human being, David would later say. If you really want to lose all your friends and all your relationships that you ever held dear, that's the drug to do it with. He would describe himself in this era as numb and an ice man. Rather than go out, everything was brought in. Food, drugs, art supplies. David busied himself with new songs and other creative pursuits like paintings, sketches, and sculptures. He'd work obsessively around the clock for literally days on end. I hate sleep, he said at the time. I much prefer staying up, just working all the time. It makes me so mad that we can't do anything about sleep or the common cold. The neurological effects of extreme sleep deprivation is almost indistinguishable from psychosis. After a few days awake, auditory and visual hallucinations become commonplace. So are paranoid delusions that others are plotting against you, and narcissistic notions that you're the cause of worldly and supernatural events. It's no exaggeration to say that David Bowie spent much of 1975 in a state of self-induced insanity. It had always been his greatest fear, He'd watched it happen to his beloved half-brother, Terry, a vibrant life destroyed by mental illness. Now it had come for David, just like he knew it would. He would remember these days as, quote, the worst manic depression of my life. My psyche just fractured into pieces. I was hallucinating 24 hours a day. I felt like I'd fallen into the bowels of the earth. His body began to give way, or rather, almost vanish completely. Always slender, he'd shrunk to 95 pounds through a diet of coffee, Marlboro cigarettes, finely chopped red peppers, and cartons of milk. Coco Schwab tried desperately to swap out 2% for whole milk, anything for a little extra sustenance to balance out the pure pharmaceutical cocaine in his system. It was Coco who bore the brunt of his self-abuse. Sometimes she'd find him lying on the floor, and she'd hold one of his coke mirrors under his nose to check if he was still breathing. He overdosed on several occasions, once saved from death by one quick-thinking person who threw him in a bath to lower his blood pressure. Friends like Elton John and Keith Richards, both in the throes of their own addictions at the time, grew seriously concerned that he was going to die. Mick Ronson, David's one-time musical soul brother and confidant, watched helplessly from afar, voicing his fear and frustration in the press. I wish that Dave would get himself sorted out, Ronson said. He's so very confused. What he really needs is to have some good friends around him. He needs one person who won't bow to him. I could kick some sense into him. That's what he needs. But that wasn't what he got. Instead, his grip on reality became more and more tenuous as he drifted further into the world of metaphysical mystics. He spent his days and nights huddled up in a room burning candles and chanting spells. His music had included the odd reference to occultism dating back to hunky-dory tracks like Oh You Pretty Things and Quicksand, but now he was locked in a battle for his very soul, which he believed was under siege. He pored over arcane books on witchcraft and magic, both the benign white and more sinister black varieties. A favorite guide was psychic self-defense, which promised to be a safeguard for protecting yourself against paranormal malevolence. The book's instructions to sever all connections with suspected originators of psychic malice struck a chord with the increasingly paranoid Bowie, who didn't need much encouragement to keep former friends at arm's length. 
He became convinced that his lawyer Michael Littman was a mafioso, and another associate, a CIA agent, sent to spy on him. He believed that girlfriend Ava Cherry was a vampire. She recalls seeing him burn a bracelet that had been given to him by another woman who he suspected of being a witch. Before long, Ava retired from the sorry scene. To safeguard his spirit, he began drawing protective pentagrams and other symbols on the walls and windows of Glenn Hughes' home. More than mere security, some were gateways into different worlds and other dimensions. The shades were kept permanently drawn because, as David later recalled, he didn't want the L.A. sun spoiling the vibe of the eternal now. He often seemed to go into a trance, becoming hyper-focused on whatever was at hand. He'd spend days working on a song, only to realize that he'd been endlessly rewriting the first four bars. Glenn Hughes would go days without seeing David, only to find him in the same place, wearing the same clothes and the same intense expression, rerunning the same silent German expressionist films or Nazi newsreels. His fascination with the Third Reich had intensified since reading The Spear of Destiny. The book explored Hitler's supposed obsession with occult powers and his search for divine artifacts like the Holy Grail and the lance that stabbed Jesus' side. David found himself drawn to this need to possess the mythological link to God. He became interested in a form of astral photography called Killian, designed to capture the spiritual aura in addition to the physical body. While visiting the UCLA Department of Parapsychology to learn more about Killian, he stopped in to see his friend Iggy Pop, who was undergoing court-mandated psychiatric evaluation after pushing his mind and body to the brink through drug abuse. David could have taken this as a warning sign from the universe to take it easy and clean up his act, but he didn't. Instead, he showed up and immediately offered Iggy some coke. I thought we should bring him some drugs, because he probably hadn't had any for days, David would remember. Clearly, David wasn't getting the hint. Instead, he looked for patterns elsewhere, desperate to find order and deeper meaning or some sign of preordained fate. He became convinced that the Rolling Stones were sending secret messages to him through their album covers. He began to study letters from friends, using small details like the number of lines, repeated words, or even the day it was sent to work out the date of his own death. Journalists requesting an interview were required to submit their zodiac sign and exact time of their birth. Once Bowie consulted a tarot deck, he would be in touch about whether or not the numbers were right for a meeting. One of the few interviews he gave in this period was to Cameron Crowe, Rolling Stone's teenage whiz kid. Many of the most unsettling Bowie myths and snapshots from this era, like the black candles, falling phantom bodies, and stockpiling jars of his own urine, can be traced to this profile. His uncomfortable preoccupation with Nazis is on full display as he compares his own onstage charisma as Ziggy Stardust to the Fuhrer. Everybody was convincing me I was a messiah, especially on that first American tour, he said. I got hopelessly lost in the fantasy. I could have been Hitler in England. Wouldn't have been very hard. I think I would have made a bloody good Hitler. I'd be an excellent dictator. Very eccentric and quite mad. That summer, Bowie moved out of Glenn Hughes's pad and into the home of his new manager and lawyer, Michael Lippman. If Lippman thought he could rescue his client from the depths of his personal abyss, he was sorely mistaken. Any suggestions, threats, or pleas for Bowie to lay off the blow were met with an irate, don't tell me what to do, before David beat a hasty retreat to his bedroom, where he could snort in private and chant spells to his heart's content. 
He was seldom seen without the large gold crucifix that Littman had given him. It came in handy for warding off the witches that David believed were attempting to steal his semen to make a sacrificial child for the devil, a novel twist on the film Rosemary's Baby. Angie, who was still living at their home in England with their son Zoe, remembers receiving a terrified phone call from her husband, saying he'd been kidnapped by a warlock and two witches. An alleged good witch was duly summoned from New York in order to remove the dreaded curse. The witch also succeeded in performing an exorcism of the new house Bowie rented after he wore out his welcome with the Lippmans. The Egyptian-themed abode was great, except for the fact that the swimming pool was apparently haunted. He swore he'd seen bubbles and whirlpools, the obvious work of Satan. So the witch did her thing, helpfully writing out a list of incantations for David, just in case the Lord of Darkness decided to return and take a few cannonballs. Angie came to join David, and they lived together as a family with four-year-old Zoe. Despite sharing a roof, they mostly led separate lives on separate schedules, with very separate interests. Angie recalls David sleeping until the afternoon, and then spending most nights entertaining, in her words, two types of guests. Roadies delivering fat packages of the best Peruvian flake, or semi-famous showbiz coke whores. One frequent visitor was a costume designer named Ola Hudson, with whom he was seriously involved for a time. This was far out news to Ola's 10-year-old son, Saul, who once walked in on his mom and her rock star boyfriend naked. Saul would achieve his own level of musical infamy by the time he reached adulthood, when he was better known as Slash, guitarist for the band Guns N' Roses. He would always have vivid memories of Bowie swinging by his mother's house, often with Angie and Zoe in tow. It was like watching an alien land in your backyard, he would later say. David would always have fond memories of putting the future guitar god to bed. David also played a more active role in his own son's life. Up until that point, he'd largely been so focused on the business of being David Bowie that he'd been mostly absent in the toddler's world, to his increasing regret. David would later admit, I was around so infrequently, I can't imagine what an abyss that caused. Granted, David's reintroduction into Zoe's life at this particular moment brought with it a unique set of hazards, as David wrestled for some sense of control over his life. My son seen me through some of the most awful, depressing times when I was really in absolute abject agony over my emotional state, the heights of my drinking and drug doing. He's seen a lot. What ultimately saved David from himself was the production of The Man Who Fell to Earth, which finally began shooting that June. Ironically, pretending to be an alien brought him back down to the concrete reality of being a human on Earth. He arrived on set so thin that the film's customers dressed him in little boys' clothes, but the change of pace seemed to suit him. He was only too eager to trade the Hollywood high life for the more rugged world of the ranch. The cowboys and their uncomplicated meat-and-potatoes lifestyle had a stabilizing effect on him. They're fascinating, David would say. They can look at a leaf and tell you what kind of tree it's from and where it grows. It's a different breed. When he wasn't required on set, he explored the countryside, hunting the clear desert skies for UFOs or descending into the bat-infested Carlsbad caverns. He found New Mexico to be so clean and pure. This is the way I'd like the rest of America to be, he'd say. Filming was perhaps the highlight of Bowie's pretty dismal 1975. The shoot provided some semblance of structure to his previously open-ended existence. He shunned cocaine in favor of no-dose tablets, crushed up and snorted. 
old habits after all. Even without the aid of Class A stimulants, he remained unusually productive creatively. In between takes, he could often be found in his trailer, painting or reading one of the 400 books that he carted with him for the 11-week shoot. He also wrote prolifically, including pages for a proposed autobiography provisionally titled The Return of the Thin White Duke. The fragments that have surfaced reveal a series of self-mythologizing vignettes, providing a portrait of his own fragmented mind rather than a linear personal history. He also claimed to have written nine film scripts, with words accompanied by elaborate storyboard sketches. He told all who would listen that he wanted to chuck his rock star life for a career as a filmmaker. I've always been a screenwriter, he said at the time. My songs have just been practiced for scripts. To Bowie, the isolated themes of the man who fell to earth cut scarily close to the bone. My one snapshot memory of that film was not having to act, he later admitted. He remained Thomas Jerome Newton long after the filming wrapped at the end of the summer. He left the set still wearing his wardrobe for the movie, which would become his permanent attire, more or less, over the next few months. He also kept a striking, center-parted red hairdo. Newton's air of loneliness and paranoia stuck with him, too. He settled back into L.A. and back into his bad habits and prepared to make a record that would be the definitive document of his descent into hell. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. When David Bowie completed filming for The Man Who Fell to Earth in September of 1975, he returned from New Mexico to L.A., moving into the rented home in Bel Air that Coco Schwab had found for him. 
For weeks, it would serve as his creative laboratory, as he composed music intended for the film's soundtrack. Inspired by German electro-pioneer's craft work, David's new music began to experiment with the computerized sounds of ARP Odyssey synths and Japanese drum machines, primitive by today's standards, but effective and highly evocative for the instrumentals. It seemed to suit the disembodied and disengaged mood of Bowie's character in the movie, and added an unsettling, coldly clinical edge to the atonal pieces, which eschewed traditional song structure almost completely. It was unlike anything he'd ever written for any of his David Bowie guises, but ultimately his efforts weren't used for the man who fell to earth. The precise reasons why have been disputed. Some reports claim that Bowie demanded more money than the producers could afford. Others say Bowie felt snubbed upon learning that he was just one of several artists being considered to write music for the film, and he pulled out in a huff. But most likely, director Nick Rogue simply felt that Bowie's offerings were inappropriate, too unconventional for the already pretty unconventional film. Instead, Rogue went with John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas, who assembled a folk tinge soundtrack. Bowie was hurt by the whole debacle, but he wasn't going to let his daring new pieces go to waste. The experience had reinvigorated his passion for songwriting, and he prepared to enter the studio to begin work on his first new album since completing Young Americans nine months earlier. He assembled a new band, with guitarist Carlos Alomar as his trusty musical director, as well as a core crew of Dennis Davis on drums, George Murray on bass, Roy Bitten on piano, and Earl Slick on guitar. Unable to secure his friend and longtime collaborator Tony Visconti at such short notice, David tapped Harry Maslin to co-produce the ad hoc sessions. The result would be the album Station to Station. They decided to record in L.A., opting to work at Hollywood's Cherokee Studios. The brand-new facility boasted a state-of-the-art 24-track tape machine, which offered Bowie unprecedented freedom to experiment on record. In addition to the -the top-of-the-line equipment, Cherokee also offered something equally important, a loose, laid-back environment. At a time when most recording studios still clung to a sterile, almost hospital-like vibe, Cherokee was homey, with burning incense and Christmas lights constantly lit in the chill-out lounge. David liked it so much that he more or less moved in. He worked for days at a stretch. At one point, he even installed a bed in the studio. The room had no windows or clocks, and the concept of time began to melt away. Engineers and studio staff would go home to sleep, only to return the next day to find David and his players unmoved from the night before, still working. Once, after one marathon 26-hour session, David was informed that he had to clear out of the studio to make room for another band who'd booked a session. Rather than break, it was now 9 a.m. after all, he simply steered his band across town to another studio, where they carried on working till midnight. It's worth noting that after the relative abstinence of the man who fell to earth shoot, David was back on cocaine in a big way. According to co-producer Harry Maslin, He had a habit of laying out piles of white powder at various places in the studio, on the mixing console, on the piano, in the vocal booth. That way, he never had to go far to get another bump. Between the blow and the lack of sleep, it's not surprising that David claimed to remember almost nothing about the recording of Station to Station. In later years, he'd say that the only reason he knew it was recorded in Los Angeles was because that was what he'd read. David had only one memory of the session, screaming the sound of guitar feedback that he wanted for the opening of the title track. Beyond that solitary glimpse, it was all a blur. 
It was some of the most unusual, though undeniably creative, sessions that he'd ever undertaken. In the four years since recording Ziggy Stardust, his working methods had completely altered. Gone were the days of arriving in the studio with a selection of pre-written, fully rehearsed compositions. Instead, the songs were born from rough sketches that took shape in the studio. Now that he'd built up sufficient star power and was rid of Tony DeFreeze, he wasn't required to squeeze in recordings between stretches of tour dates. Now he could take his time. David could be more deliberate, considerate, and experimental. He could follow the wise words he was famous for doling out to friends in this period. Do the contrary action. Do something you're not used to, he'd tell them. Let's not make it comfortable. Let's make it uncomfortable. David was making things uncomfortable for himself and his sleep-deprived band, but the results were astounding. As author Paul Trenka would observe, this was not an exercise in songwriting. It was sculpture carved out of sound. In the midst of his bold sonic exploration, David became acquainted with the overlord of the old guard, the chairman of the board himself, Frank Sinatra. Old Blue Eyes dropped in at Cherokee Studios in October of 1975 to record. Staff and other studio clients were prepped as if it were a state visit. Bowie was briefed to be on his best behavior, not to speak unless spoken to, and only refer to Frank as Mr. Sinatra. But there was no need for such fussiness. Hoboken's favorite son was a delight, personable and funny, telling old jokes and road stories to the assorted staff and crew. He supposedly had no idea who David was, but they quickly hit it off, even getting dinner together at one of Sinatra's favorite Italian hole-in-the-walls. Bowie played him a new song he'd recorded, a cover of the old Johnny Mathis chestnut, Wind is the Wild. His skillful, sincere take on the standards suited Sinatra to a T. His enthusiasm for the track cemented Bowie's decision to include the offbeat choice on Station to Station. The first song David completed for his new project was inspired in part by another show business icon, Elvis Presley. It evolved early in the sessions, when David banged out a two-chord vamp on the piano. After he and the band fooled around with it for a time, they realized that it sounded a little too much like the early 60s R&B track On Broadway by The Drifters. So Carlos Alomar and Earl Slick worked their magic, weaving a funky, early Philly soul-styled riff that transformed the piece completely. David went to the bathroom with a pad of paper and emerged minutes later with the lyrics to Golden Years. He reportedly first offered the song to Elvis himself, who's getting near the end of his sad, decade-long personal and professional slide. But the king rejected the song, so Bowie gave it a go himself. He nailed the doo-wop-flavored vocals in just one take, slipping in an Elvis-like voice quiver just for fun. Both Angie Bowie and David's former girlfriend, Ava Cherry, have come forward saying that they were the angel of David's irrepressibly optimistic love song. Interesting, considering the fact that both relationships were either dead or dying when David recorded the song. Though the new album was far from done, David's label, RCA, was eager for a follow-up to his chart-topping latest single, Fame. They rush-released Golden Years that fall, which crashed into the top ten almost immediately. Bowie promoted the song with an appearance on Soul Train that November, becoming just the second white act to ever perform on the hit TV show. Elton John was first. Bowie's nerves got the better of him, and he hit the ball a little too hard beforehand, leading to several flubbed takes. Host Don Cornelius took Bowie aside and had a fatherly word, reminding him how many other singers would give anything for the opportunity that he was currently blowing. 
When sessions for Station to Station wrapped in the last weeks of 1975, David had completed just six songs. But it was the most adventurous music he'd made to date. The centerpiece was the title track, a 10-minute epic that broke just about every rule of conventional pop songcraft. The first minute consists solely of the sound of a passing steam train panning across the speaker before the howl of Earl Slick's guitar feedback emerges from the haze, the perfect welcome to the sinister soundscape to come. The introduction is every childhood nightmare rolled into one. From the moment you hear Roy Bitten's ominous two-note figure on a honky-tonk piano, it's pretty clear. This place is definitely haunted. The howling guitar shrieks pierce through like a maniacal laugh of an evil clown in a dilapidated funhouse. George Murray's tight bass groove and Dennis Davis's drums barge in like the plodding footsteps of a demented zombie. It's offset by delicately grazed guitar strings, like individual hairs being raised on the back of one's neck. A fairground organ appears out of nowhere, and suddenly you're on a flaming carousel from Hades. Round and round and round it goes, locked in seemingly endless repetition. You want off, but there's no exit. Just when you think you've adjusted to this new and terrible reality, a pair of jarring rapid-fire time changes knock you off your feet. Sonically, it's all very interesting. The lockstep rhythm is indicative of David's growing interest in the motoric industrial sounds of German bands like Kraftwerk and Neu, blended with tricks gleaned from Philly Soul and Detroit Funk. But you aren't having these thoughts when you're listening to it. All you know is, this music is coming to get you. It's more than three minutes, the length of most songs, before David's voice can be heard. He's no longer Ziggy Stardust, or David the Soul Man, or even Thomas Jerome Newton. Instead, he's unveiling his latest persona, the Thin White Duke, a monstrous physical embodiment of paranoia and megalomania, wrapped in the icy exterior that falls somewhere between a 1930s European cabaret star and a 1950s rat packer. Dapper yet deadly. The character has been alternately described as a mad aristocrat, an amoral zombie, or an emotionless Aryan Superman. He was, in Bowie's own words, a nasty character indeed. Fans would get to know him better soon enough. The precise meaning of Station to Station has puzzled listeners for decades. Many have commented on the song's quasi-religious overtones, picking apart the mishmash of references to Kabbalah, occultism, and other esoteric philosophies and faiths. David himself would say that the title Station to Station refers not to the train sound effects, but the Christian stations of the cross. However, the travel metaphor does seem to be an apt one, as David continued on his wayward spiritual search. Contrary to the lyrics, this does appear to be a side effect of the cocaine. Freud's magical substance had sent David on an express train to hell. On some level, perhaps that was the intent. During this same period, Bowie outlined his interest in, quote, watching artists crack open a bit and seeing what they're really like inside. Presumably for this reason, he'd admired people like Iggy Pop, Lou Reed, Brian Wilson, and Pink Floyd's Sid Barrett, and even the Ziggy inspiration Vince Taylor, men touched with fire who had suffered for their music. Most of David's work had, to this point, come from imagination rather than a private torment. But during those long nights in L.A. in the fall of 1975, 
David Bowie, knowingly or unknowingly, gambled his soul to probe for new artistic territory. Within just a few years, he looked back on much of what he said during the Station to Station era as, quote, the incredibly insane mutterings of a very hurt, broken mentality. He cast his mind back to his half-brother, Terry, locked away in an institution for his schizophrenic visions. Now David was tortured by a similar horde of faces. They were with him on stage, in the studio, and in his home. I was definitely a fractured person, David would say, confounding myself with images and characters that I found I was living with. A combination of that and a year and a half of fairly hard drugs. I was being threatened by my own characters, feeling them coming in on me and grinning at me, saying, we're going to take you over completely. I thought, this is it. Terry, I'm just about to join you. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Noel Brown and Sean Titone. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The show is written and hosted by me, Jordan Runtog, and edited, scored, and sound designed by Tristan McNeil. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay. And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.